Dr. Jordan Baller has a doctorate of theology from the University of Zurich, a PhD from Calvin Theological Seminary, and is a senior research fellow and director of publishing at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which if you're not familiar with, there's some great pamphlets I saw back there from the Acton Institute. It is an amazing organization that I can't recommend enough. Um, his current research project at Acton is entitled, What Good Markets Are Good For? And this project is funded by the Templeton World Charity Foundation and sets out to rediscover and develop connections between morality and markets. He serves as Associate Director of the Junius Institute for Digital Reformation Research at Calvin Theological Seminary, his alma mater. He is also a postdoctoral researcher in theology and economics at the VU University of Amsterdam. And in his free time, which I'm sure he has, being married with three children, who've already started sports, which um, he still manages to publish on a lot of different intellectual blogs, such as Cardis and the Acton Institute, Power Blog, and in a myriad of different journals. He is the former editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, and is the general editor of Sources in Early Modern Economics, Ethics and Law, and Abraham Kuyper Collected Works in Public Theology. And he's also authored several books of his own right, including Get Your Hands Dirty, Essays on Christian Social Thought, Covenant Causality and Law, A Study in the Theology of Wolfgang Musculus, and Ecumenical Babel, Confusing Economic Ideology and the Church's Social Witness. So on top of being an expert in economics and Christianity, he's also a committed Calvinist and an expert in many other areas. So we're lucky to have Dr. Jordan Baller Welcome him to the stage. Thank you for that introduction, TJ, and the welcome, the hospitality we've already enjoyed and are going to continue to enjoy. I'm glad TJ mentioned sports. Um, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of wrestling, particularly professional wrestling. Uh, it used to be called the World Wrestling Federation, now it's the WWE. So when people were asking me to describe what this event was going to be, I naturally thought back to my wrestling days, and <laughs> I would sometimes jokingly refer to it as a three-on-three -three match, three Protestants versus three Catholics in different corners. Um, I don't see a steel cage anywhere. I, I don't think one's going to pop up or drop down. Hopefully I don't have to tag one of my fellow Protestants to come in and get me out of a, a submission hold or something like that. Um, you know, there are limits to such images, and uh, even though we might, actually if we thought about it, have a bit of fun casting figures from the 16th and 17th century as wrestling personas, um, some of the rhetoric from the pamphlet wars and things that people wrote might translate pretty well into the diatribes of professional wrestling. But what we're in fact doing today is at least ideally not fighting, at least certainly not any, even in the highly stylized and performative sense of professional wrestling. TJ mentioned I have three children and, and um, my 12-year-old son was devastated when I thought he already knew that it was fake. Um, I'm sorry to, uh, spoiler alert in case, uh, it's at least planned. Um, 
Neither, uh, so we're not wrestling, but we're not engaged in a scholastic disputation of the kind that we often find in this period, the 16th and 17th century, where a particular perspective or view, a proposition or thesis or set of propositions or theses would be debated in a more formal academic setting, often with an adjudicative body, whether a faculty or faculties, a ruler of some kind, a bishop, a, a prince or a council would determine the winner. No, hopefully what we are engaged in here at this event is something else, and it's a bit more like a different humanistic genre of the Reformation age, something more like a friendly or amicable colloquy, a charitable sharing of views and perspectives amidst both disagreement and agreement. Disagreement sometimes that's even sharp, perhaps sometimes insurmountable. So I hope that whatever I have to say in the remainder of these prepared remarks as well as the discussions in and during the conference will be taken in this spirit, that of a friendly dialogue. Wherever there's something said that might cause offense, let us hope and assume it is said not to be offensive, but because it is believed to be true and in accord with the command of the apostle to speak the truth in love, which you read in Ephesians 4.15. So in that spirit, I want to explore the implications of the reformational motto, Sempor Reformanda, which has already been invoked and discussed a bit in some of the previous talks. Always reforming. And in exploring that formula, talk about the origins of the Protestant Reformation, how it developed, and what some of those implications are for today. My proposal is that a proper understanding of the imperative to be always reforming requires first continually seeking integrity and doctrine in church life, and next seeking amity and community wherever possible in practice and public life. In exploring that proposal, I'll first talk about the Reformation of Doctrine, move on to discuss the Reformation of Practice, implications for church and society, move hopefully from then to now, and conclude with some final comments. So first, the Reformation of Doctrine. As the eminent historical theologian Richard Muller has observed, a zeal for orthodoxy, or right teaching, was central to the Protestant Reformation. Thus he writes, quote, Right teaching was the goal of the Reformation from its moment of inception. Luther, Zwingli, Butzer, and other early reformers saw a host of abuses and non-scriptural doctrinal accretions in the practices and teachings of the church. Their goal in attacking these abuses and accretions was to reform both Christian life and teaching. The earliest confessions of the Protestant churches are quite specific in this goal. They do not present entire bodies of doctrine, but only those particular points of doctrine, such as grace, faith, justification, and the sacraments, where a return to right teaching was needed. So the point of departure for the Reformation was thus originally a somewhat limited set of topics or doctrines, particularly those related to soteriology, and many of those we've already discussed in some of the earlier lectures and questions. In this sense, Luther's focus on indulgences early on in 1517 can be seen as representative. His goal was to reform the abuses of the theology and practice of the sale of indulgences. This led him very quickly to explore other related doctrines, including notably justification and ecclesiology. Again, as Muller notes, quote, it is worth recognizing from the outset that the Reformation altered comparatively few of the major loci of theology. 
The doctrines of justification, the sacraments, and the church receive the greatest emphasis, while the doctrines of God, the Trinity, creation, providence, predestination, and the last things were taken over by the Magisterial Reformation virtually without alteration. The relationship of these early generations of reform and the later generations comes in the more thorough, consistent, detailed, and comprehensive systems of theology that were developed in the era of Protestant orthodoxy. Speaking of teaching related to grace, faith, and other particularly soteriological topics, Muller says that, quote, the Protestant orthodox held fast to these Reformation insights and to the confessional norms of Protestantism, and at the same time moved toward the establishment of an entire body of right teaching in continuity with both the Reformation and with the truths embodied in the whole tradition of Christian doctrine. They recognized that the claim of Protestantism to re represent the church could only be maintained if the witness of the Reformation proved to be the key not only to the reform of a series of ecclesiastical abuses, but also to the reformulation of the body of Christian doctrine, that is, the reform of all of Christian doctrine. So contrasting the early and later eras, quote, the selectivity of the Reformation in its polemic, the selectivity of the Reformation in its polemic had to be transcended in the direction of a reformed Catholicity, says Muller. From the perspective of doctrine, then, we can see that the Reformation was an effort initially to clarify and correct those theological teachings that had, from the perspective of the Reformers at least, been corrupted or otherwise taught falsely or other incompletely in some way. Often, this was done polemically or in an occasional fashion. And a great example of this is the pamphlet wars of the early 16th century. From this somewhat limited or narrow starting point, the need became clear to develop and articulate comprehensive systems of theology, both for apologetic as well as for institutional and intellectual reasons. This is the era of Protestant orthodoxy, lasting roughly from the third generation of the reformers up into the 18th century. The program of the reformers and the later Protestant orthodox was thus not a complete and total break with everything that had proceeded. It was instead a carefully selective and prudent pruning of doctrine, correcting, overturning, reinterpreting, and affirming wherever necessary. Where Calvin and Luther often set a polemical edge in disputes with Roman Catholic and Anabaptists, it was for their more systematic contemporaries and successors to more carefully articulate and develop statements, not only for theological dispute, but also for theological edification and education. From the perspective of doctrine, then, the reformation of doctrine was initially somewhat narrow or limited and was later developed into a more comprehensive and robust theological tradition of its own. Doctrine, however, was never the end of the story for the Protestant reformers and in many ways was only the beginning. Thus, we can talk about the reformation of practice. If, as Muller put it, quote, right teaching was the goal of the Reformation from the moment of its inception, then similarly, right practice was the goal of right teaching right from the beginning. The doctrines that came under scrutiny were not random or haphazard. They were those that were seen to be most existentially pressing at the time, both individually as well as communally. Luther's own personal struggles over the doctrines of grace, merit, and justification are well known. 
For the reformers, emphasis on salvation by grace alone through faith alone answered the needs of a lived experience engendered by their interaction with late medieval piety and learning. The reformers excoriated the so-called doubt doctors, some of whom have already been named. Matthew Gaetano discussed Gabriel Beale, for example, whose teachings were responsible, in their view, for instilling radical uncertainty among Christians as to their status before God. All of this uncertainty and doubt fed into the indulgence trade and the place of the church hierarchy and its foremost representative, the Pope, as a dispenser of comfort and assurance. This helps us understand, for instance, why the theme of comfort is so pervasive throughout a document like the Heidelberg Catechism, a Reformed Confession of that era, whose famous opening question is, what is my only comfort in life and death? The Catechism gives this reassuring answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. In this short answer, we see the themes not only of the Catechism itself, but also of the Reformation. Right teaching that leads to right practice, that is, a life lived in grateful obedience to God. The Heidelberg Catechism was published in 1563, but this emphasis on discipleship throughout the whole of the Christian life goes back to the beginning of the Reformation itself. Indeed, the very first thesis of Luther's 95 Theses, the anniversary of which brings us together today, states that, quote, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, will that the whole life of believers should be repentance. In this first statement of reformational intent, Luther thus articulates an emphasis on the whole life of believers. Not just what we believe, but also what we do and how we live. This emphasis is one of the most lasting impacts of Luther's reformational efforts. As the Lutheran theologian of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, described it, Luther's path out of the monastery back to the world meant the sharpest attack that had been launched on the world since early Christianity. Luther retained the special sense of Christian calling that guided the life of a monk or the religious, but applied it not merely within the walls of the monastery or the doors of a cathedral, but to every square inch of the created world. Following Jesus now had to be lived in the midst of the world, writes Bonhoeffer. What had been practiced in the world, in the, in the special easier circumstances of the monastic life, he says, as a special accomplishment, had now become what was necessary and commanded for every Christian in the world. Now, 1520 was a particularly fruitful year for Luther. His major works from this time are usually identified as his treatise on the freedom of the Christian, the Babylonian captivity of the church where he discusses the sacraments and his address to the German nobility. In that third treatise, the address to the German nobility, Luther articulated his vision for reform and worked out its implications for every Christian in the world, whether bishop, prince, brewer, or baker. Thus writes Luther, therefore, just as those who are now called spiritual 
that as priests, bishops, or popes, are neither different from other Christians nor superior to them, except that they are charged with the administration of the word of God and the sacraments, which is their office and work. So it is with temporal authorities. They bear the sword and rod in their hand to punish the wicked and protect the good. A cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work of office and trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of his own work or office, so that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, just as all members of the body serve one another. So for Luther, each member of the body has a particular office or responsibility, but similarly, each one shares a fundamental responsibility to follow Christ faithfully. This vision has radical implications for the reformation of all of society and all of life. It is the duty of every Christian, writes Luther, to espouse the cause of the faith, to understand and defend it, and to denounce every error. It is not simply the responsibility of the spiritual or temporal authorities to promote and defend true faith. This is part of the universal calling of all Christians, an aspect of the priesthood and prophethood of all believers on Luther's understanding. Now, to the extent that Luther retains a hierarchical vision of church and society, we can see here a reciprocal impulse to emphasize a bottom-up rather than a top-down reality in the body of Christ. This perspective is even more evident in another relatively understudied treatise from 1520 on the papacy of Rome, which is Luther's response to the Leipzig theologian Augustinus Aldfeld. In this treatise, Luther addresses the questions, quote, whether the papacy in Rome, possessing the actual power over all of Christendom, as they say, is derived from divine or human order. So does this office come from, from God or from human order? And if so, whether it would be a Christian statement to say that all other Christians in the world are heretics and schismatics, even though they adhere to the same baptism, sacrament, gospel, and all articles of faith in harmony with us, if they do not have their priests and bishops confirmed by Rome. So that's the, the, the questions that he's exploring. Now, the main argument that I want to focus on today is what Luther says is the argument according to natural reason that all felt advances. And it goes as follows. A, there's two parts. A, the premise, every community on earth, if it is not to disintegrate, must have a physical head under Christ, the true head. And from that it follows. B, since all of Christendom is a single community on earth, it must have a single head who is the Pope. And the A and B actually come from Luther. Um, he says he wants to use those letters because he wants to grant that Aldfeld at least knows the alphabet up to A and B. So this is the typical kind of rhetoric that you would encounter in these kinds of treatises. Luther responds to this by arguing that it's futile to move from temporal reason and earthly order to divine things, unless that temporal reason has already been established on the basis of divine faith. Since Christendom is primarily a spiritual reality rather than a temporal physical one, Luther says it's invalid to argue that it should follow the same rules and order as other temporal communities. He goes on to dispute both the premise and the conclusion. First, says Luther, the premise states that every community on earth must have a single physical head under Christ. This is simply not true. How many principalities, castles, cities, and families can be found where two brothers or lords rule with equal power? Luther actually grew up in one of these areas. Um, the mining town where he was, his father worked had uh, brothers that were ducal lords, I think. Both had 
they, they both had castles up at the top of the hill, looked look down. And eventually there were three brothers, and they had arguments over who, who had the mining rights and so on. But he provides some historical examples, too. He says, even the Roman Empire and many other empires in the world have for a long time governed themselves very well without a single head. How do the Swiss govern themselves in our own time? It's a confederation. Again, there's no single overlord in worldly regiments since we are all one human race and all come from one father, Adam. The kingdom of France has its king. Hungary, Poland, and Denmark each have their own. They are still one people with the worldly estate within Christendom, even though they do not have a single head, nor does this cause these kingdoms to disintegrate. So he disputes A. Luther goes on to explore the proper ways of understanding Christendom according to his reading of scripture and understanding of tradition. He concludes from Scripture that the essence, life, and nature of Christendom is not a physical assembly, but an assembly of hearts and one faith. This is essentially a spiritual rather than a physical unity and community. Quote, regardless of whether a thousand miles separates them physically, they are still called one assembly in spirit, as long as each one preaches, believes, hopes, loves, and lives like the other. In this way, Luther distinguishes the external, institutional, physical expressions of community from the internal, invisible, and spiritual reality of unity in Christ. Now, the tradition also had a second way of speaking of Christendom, which for Luther is about, quote, external forms, such as singing, reading, and the vestments of the Mass. He notes that, quote, canon and human laws do call such externals church or Christendom, but that this way of speaking is, in his view, deficient. It is, of course, appropriate to talk about the physical instantiations or manifestations of the spiritual realities, but these should not, should not be confused, and the physical should not be substituted for or conflated with the spiritual. In this way, Luther distinguishes two senses of church, two senses of church or Christendom. Quote, the first, which is natural, basic, essential, and true, we shall call spiritual internal Christendom. The second, which is man-made and external, we shall call physical external Christendom. From this conclusion, the question naturally follows to what extent there must be uniformity in what each physical community or instantiation of the larger spiritual unity teaches and practices. Must the unity of spiritual internal Christendom come to expression in a unitary and uniform physical external Christendom? No, says Luther. Nine, even. Many countries have many customs, he says. Luther likewise points to the diversity of institutional expression of the spiritual church of Christ that has taken across, it has taken across times and places. And he refers particularly to the Orthodox churches in Russia, Greece, and throughout the East. Luther observes that all of them believe like us, baptize like us, preach like us, live like us, and also honor the Pope without spending money for the confirmation of their priests and bishops. So he's contrasting their activities with his own Germany. They too are prepared to hear the gospel from the Pope or from the Pope's ambassadors, and yet nothing happens to them. Now the question is whether all of them, he says, should be branded heretics by us Christians, or whether or not the real heretics and schismatics are we when we brand such Christians heretics and schismatics for the sake of money alone. Now, Luther here is referring to the Orthodox Church's relationships, relationship with the Roman papacy. Their respect for him as a patriarch, but at the same time, their unwillingness to submit to him for the consecration and authorization of their bishops and priests. 
Responding to Jesus' statement, quote, that the kingdom of God is within you that we find in Luke 17, Luther writes, everyone can clearly understand from it that the kingdom of God, or Christendom, is not in Rome, is not bound to Rome, and is neither here nor there. Rather, it is where there is inward faith, whether the man be in Rome or wherever he may be. Now, we spent this time examining Luther's early treatise on the papacy because this distinction between the spiritual unity and the temporal diversity of the church ties directly into the developments of the post-Reformation period and beyond. Luther, as we have seen, noted the great schism, the churches of the great schism on either side, a phenomenon which brought to the fore the question of the lack of unity in the external institutional expression of Christ's church. So these are issues that were not novel in the 16th century. At least in the West, though, this did not yet seem to rise to the level of existential crisis for the church. The ecclesiastical splits at the beginning of the 16th century did bring the unity, or the lack thereof, in Christendom to the front and center. Now, this question of unity and diversity would still be of primary importance for the following centuries. Even up to the end of the 19th century, the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper picked up the theme sounded in Luther's 1520 treatise that we've just examined and developed in more detail a distinction between the institutional and organic church, or the church understood as an institution and as an organism. This distinction closely mirrors Luther's own distinction between the external physical church and the internal spiritual church. Kuyper's distinction has been the cause of some controversy and discussion in the intervening time. But we can see from Luther's treatise that it has clear precedent going back to the earliest days of the Reformation. So whereas Luther articulated the distinction between the two kinds of Christendom within his own context, the struggle against papal supremacy, Kuyper worked out and developed his thinking in a somewhat different context. The context of a desire to bring a reformational understanding of the church to bear within an increasingly plural and secular culture in the Netherlands in the 19th century. The institute-organism distinction is key for Kuyper's arguments for the disestablishment of the church in the Netherlands and the introduction of something like a separation or a distinction between church and government. For Kuyper, furthering the Reformation meant working out and applying Luther's insights on the spiritual nature of the church within his own context. So a few comments about institute-organism and its impacts uh, for our view of society. Now, Kuyper elaborated his understanding of the church in his opening sermon as a pastor in Amsterdam in 1870. The sermon's title is Rooted and Grounded, and it's derived from the hope expressed by the Apostle Paul that the church would be rooted and grounded in love that we find in Ephesians 3.17. The church for Kuyper is a living body, rooted in its connection with the living word, Jesus Christ, the true vine and source of life. The church is also grounded in its institutional expressions, its confessions, teachings, practices. So the formal elements you could think of. This distinction is intended to articulate the authentic reform position on Kuiper's view against what he sees as two errors. The overemphasis on the institution found in what Luther called external Christendom on the one side, and the overemphasis on the organic life of the church found in many radical sectarians on the other. Only the Reformed view for Kuiper, and this is pretty typical of his thinking, 
uh, and only increasingly as it defined itself against older models of church and state, keeps the proper balance and relationship between these two aspects of the church's existence. So we have to have both, and we have to have both in proper relationship for Kuiper. Now, the magisterial reformers had articulated a distinction between the visible and the invisible church as a way to explain and understand the difference between membership in a particularly earthly community in a particular time and place and citizenship in heaven. Luther, in particular, as we've seen, distinguished the external manifestation of the institutional church from the internal spiritual unity of the church under the spiritual headship of Christ. Kuiper develops a new dimension to this received understanding by further exploring the difference between the church and its formal, institutional, and its disseminated organic expressions. The institutional church has to do with what the church does in some kind of formal, ecclesiastical sense, in the, in the sense that we typically use that term. Here on the Protestant side, for sure, the traditional marks of their church received from the era of the Reformation are in view. So the institutional church is often defined in terms of the pure preaching of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the appropriate or right administration of church discipline. The institutional church is visible when the church gathers together in corporate worship, for example. The organic church comes to expression as the church is spread throughout the world in various arenas and vocations as the individual Christians on their own and together go out into the world. So if the institutional church is found in worship, corporate worship, more formal corporate worship, the organic church manifests itself in work and society. The church as an institution is gathered for worship. The church as an organism is scattered for work. Now, older models of the relationship between the church and the world, such as those found in classical Christendom, which we've been discussing, tended to conflate civil and ecclesiastical powers, often with ecclesiastical power absolutizing the authority of the institutional church. This was, for Kuiper, the fundamental error of Rome, and one that was too often replicated among the early magisterial Protestant communities. In contrast to what was viewed as the clericalization of all of life under this external Christendom, various radical responses tended to emphasize the organic and spontaneous aspects of the Christian religion. So here the formal structures of Christian worship and church life, sometimes even scripture itself, could be seen as dispensable or even sometimes impediments to true faith. So for Kuiper, this institute-organism distinction is intended to address an inconsistency in the reformed embrace of older Christendom models, while at the same time guarding against excessive pietistic spiritualization and understandings of the faith as merely expressions of individual experience. It's also designed to provide a framework for understanding how the church ought to function within a pluralized and institutionally secularized society. The institutional church, argues Kuiper, has no right to impose its confession on the world through the use of the civil government's coercive power. Quote, we advocate a rigorously confessional church, says Kuiper, but not a confessional civil society, not a confessional state. In this way, Kuiper's vision was of both a free church and a holy nation. Thus he asserts, quote, we must be free in order to escape Rome's paralysis, but we, we must be no less be church in order to escape the draining away of our lifeblood as a result of spiritualism. 
the true Church of Christ, according to Reformed conviction, quote, envisions through her influence on state and civil society nothing other than a moral triumph, not the establishing of confessional ties nor the exercise of authoritarian dominance. Herman Bavink, who's already been mentioned as well, was Kuiper's younger anti-revolutionary colleague and his successor to, as professor of theology at the Free University of Amsterdam, which Kuiper founded. And he articulated an analogous distinction in his description of the kingdom of God as both a pearl and a leaven. For Bavink, the gospel comes to expression as a pearl of great price, taken from the parable of Matthew 13, 45 and 46. And it's found, as we've seen, in the institutional church's proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Salvation is like a pearl that is worth everything we have. But this salvation is not just a matter of one-time individual experience. The regenerated and converted person, increasingly dying to self and living to God, continues to live in the world. As the Belgian Confession puts it, quote, those who are regenerated have in them a twofold life, the one corporeal and temporal, which they have from the first birth and is common to all men, the other spiritual and heavenly, which was given them in their second birth. This second birth creates human beings who still live in the world and encounter it in their daily work, their occupations, and all of our worldly social relationships. The organic church is thus the primary way that the church exercises a reforming influence on the broader society outside the walls of the institutional church. Although the worth of Christianity is certainly not only, not exclusively, and not even in the first place determined by its influence on civilization, writes Bob Inc., it is nevertheless undeniable that Christianity indeed exerts such an influence. The kingdom of heaven is not only a pearl, it is a leaven as well. For both Kuiper and Bobbing, the organic church is the living foundation for the edifice of the institutional church, which serves to support and instruct the body of Christ in its mission to do God's will in the world. Now this dual emphasis on the importance of the church, both as an institution and as a living body, an organism, akin to the images of the pearl and the leaven, is, I think, a significant legacy of the Dutch Reformed ecclesiology of the 19th century. It's a, an important example of the way in which fundamental Reformation teachings for all of life have been furthered in the years since 1517. So moving from then to now. In arguing for the distinction between church and society on the one hand and between the institutional and organic church on the other, Kuiper and Bobbing help lead Dutch Reformed churches through the treacherous paths of modernity, not without missteps or faults or mistakes. And these are paths that all denominations and traditions have had to traverse in these last 500 years. By clearly differentiating between the external and internal Christendom, Luther opened up avenues for more consistently and comprehensively distinguishing between the spiritual and temporal kingdoms as well as the appropriate jurisdictions for, for coercion and the use of the sword. Even though early on Luther recognized that there could be no coercion in matters of faith, the main line of the magisterial Protestants followed the Roman Catholic Church and traditional uh, teaching in using the sword to enforce, promote, and protect true religion. We can think here of the Roman Inquisition as well as the reformed marriage courts of Zurich of that era. <laughs> Article 36 of the Belgian Confession, which I've quoted already, 
It was written in 1561. Um, and this article, Kuiper and Bobbink would work to revise, is representative of this view of the civil magistrate. Quote, their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship. And the kingdom of Antichrist may thus be destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. They must therefore countenance the preaching of the word and the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Now Luther in his 1523 treatise on temporal authority, as well as other places, contended that, quote, where the temporal authority presumes to prescribe laws for the soul, it encroaches upon God's government and only misleads souls and destroys them. The reality that faith could not be coerced was not lost on the authors of the Belgian Confession or the many others of that time who argued that the civil authorities should take an active care for true religion. They recognized, in fact, that there were two main lines of tradition on these questions in church history. The second-generation Bernese reformer, Wolfgang Musculus, whom TJ already mentioned in the title of one of my books, noted that there was a line of thinking extending from Tertullian in the early church through to his own day that held that faith could not be coerced. Robert Louis Wilkin today um, has done recent work tracing this line from Tertullius through Lactantius and the Protocols of Milan, and has argued that this is the critical Christian background of ideas for religious liberty today. Now, Musculus and others knew of these views, but they were convinced that permitting religious liberty in this way would open up the church to all kinds of attacks, allow heresies and blasphemies to blossom, and it would endanger not only the civil order, which was a really important thing, but especially would endanger those who might be led astray by such false teachings. So their earthly, as well as their eternal destiny, was in question. The dilemma they faced was that, on the one hand, to coerce or promote the faith through temporal power guaranteed that there would be hypocrisy, itself a very dangerous sin, of course. But to not promote true faith would be to invite open and evangelical apostasy, which, in their view, endangered both temporal order and eternal salvation. Now, it would be, I think, and I will assert today, although not argue in great detail, for reformers like Peter Martyr Vermeili and Jan Waski, otherwise known as Johannes Alasco, and figures like Sebastian Castellio, rather than Wolfgang Musculus or John Calvin or Heinrich Bullinger, to lead the way in developing a model of church and state that would be more easily accommodating for something like confessional pluralism. These former figures, in arguing for a purer conception of the church and emphasizing discipline as a mark of the church, distinguishing it from the world, led the way in what I think might be called a kind of embryonic liberal pluralism. Vermeule, for instance, affirmed the use of excommunication, understood as a last resort and as an exercise of church discipline. And it was always intended to bring the sinner back uh, to repentance and into full communion. But in the meantime, he asserted that it was permissible to associate in mundane or worldly affairs with excommunicated persons. Otherwise, he said, the church must totally withdraw from the world. Now this option, withdrawal, is more often associated with varieties of the Radical Reformation and Anabaptism. By contrast, those early reformers who distinguished the church from society 
without conflating or radically separating them, led the way in developing ways of living together with whom they disagreed. We can see some examples of, that, of this in that time in the Netherlands as well as places like Poland. In its own way, the Roman Catholic Church, as we've heard in um, Corey Moss's lecture earlier, has, has begun to come to terms with these dynamics, done so in remarkable ways since the Second Vatican Council. Contra Rousseau, who said that it is impossible to live at peace with those we regard as damned. These early reformers provided a framework within which modern conceptions of religious liberty and liberal pluralism could be developed. So in conclusion, I want to say some things about the Reformation and, and what might be called the liberal order. The language of further reformation that I have in the title of the talk is related to the reformational slogan, as we've seen, Semper Reformanda, always reforming. But it's also identified with a movement in the Netherlands known as the Dutch Second or Further Reformation, the Nadera Reformatie, um, which you could think of as a kind of a continental counterpart to English Puritanism. These movements sought to continue and further develop and apply the Reformation and its teachings consistently throughout all of individual, particularly um, pious manifestations of, of individual life as well as social life. Now, I've just asserted that in some sense the movement to more purely reform the church, and by that I mean in the sense of applying discipline and a concern for morality, piety, and righteousness, when it was combined with a charge not to completely withdraw from, but rather to engage the world and witness to it and cultivate it and develop it, this helped set the stage for something like the modern liberal order. This order, understood in terms of the priority of conscience, what the evangelical theologian Os Guinness has called soul freedom, picking up a theme from the free church traditions. When understood in connection with the boundaries of the rule of law, democratic republicanism, peace amidst pluralism and diversity is a legacy of the Reformation era. But we're not just indebted to the Protestant reformers in this regard and the, some of those that I've named because it takes all sides to make peace and to find ways to live together. It is this achievement, I think, that is perhaps the most delicate legacy of the Reformation era and the one that is most vulnerable as we meet here 500 years after Luther's momentous actions. It's remarkable, I think, to reflect on the mere fact that all of us in this room with our various backgrounds, views, can meet together peacefully and amicably I haven't been booed off the stage yet, and nobody's thrown anything at me. We don't have security around, I don't think, unless there's some plainclothes people around. So even though I opened with the image of a wrestling match, we're not here ultimately to fight, even in that performative or stylized sense. Maybe you've been keeping score in your head. I don't know who's winning. <laughs> we six speakers, along with our gracious hosts, have fellowshiped together over the last day or so. We've had some, some meals together, and... Um, discussions. We've broken bread together, even if it was the common bread of a meal and not the Lord's Supper. It's still a kind of community that we have with believers of all kinds and even non-believers as well that's worth cherishing and appreciating, even if it isn't identical with the community of the body of Christ itself in its fullness. I, I'm not sure whether fellowship like this or an event like this how often and where it could have been held in the last 500 years. Certainly there were times and places where it was possible, and it did happen. But there were lots of places where it wouldn't have been possible for all kinds of reasons. 
So one of the key lessons of the Reformation era is that we need to continue to find ways to live together amid deep disagreement without fighting and killing each other. That sounds like a pretty straightforward application of the Golden Rule. Not always so straightforward, though. The fact that we can have a conference like this, break bread together, fellowship, share community, disagree, is noteworthy. It's not always been the case over the last 500 years, and we should be grateful for it and appreciate it for the gift it truly is. Now, I'm a northerner from Michigan by way of Virginia and California, so maybe I can be forgiven for quoting Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> who said in a somewhat but um, perhaps not altogether different context in his first inaugural address, we are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. So let's continue to be faithful to the traditions we've inherited from this era, whether Protestant or Roman Catholic, and pursue integrity in our doctrine and practice and wherever possible, amity and community in all of life. I'm reminded here of the apocryphal Augustinian saying, unity in necessary things, liberty in doubtful things, charity in all things. And that saying, in fact, dates to the post-Reformation era in the early 17th century. And you can even find versions of it that add prudentia to caritas in that last line. So in all things, prudence and charity. So as we seek to prudently live in loving community, we ought to continue to always seek reform according to God's will in our individual lives as well as our communities. We can reform within our own circles and institutions on our own. And perhaps for this, we do not absolutely need to engage with those outside of our particular confession or congregation but I do think principled ecumenical efforts are in fact obligatory for the body of Christ. In the broader society though, we need to join with others, sometimes even with those whom we have little in common, always appropriately in a principled, purposive way. So in seeking this further reform of all of life in the context of our individual callings to follow Christ, I'll conclude with one of my favorite passages from the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, who I've already mentioned. He's talking about uh, writing at the early 20th century on threats to the family arising from various worldly ideologies and whether these threats might be profitably met by a particularly political action. Bavink says very wisely, I think, quote, all good enduring reformation begins with ourselves and takes its starting point in one's own heart and life. If family life is indeed being threatened from all sides today, then there's nothing better for each person to be doing than immediately to begin reforming within one's own circle and to begin to rebuff with the facts themselves the sharp criticisms that are being registered nowadays against marriage and family. Such a reformation has this immediately in its favor. It would lose no time, would not need to wait for anything. Anyone seeking deliverance from the state must travel the lengthy route of forming a political party, having meetings, referendums, parliamentary debates, and civil legislation, and it's still unknown whether with all that activity he will achieve any success. But reforming from within can be undertaken by each person at every moment and advanced without impediment. Amen, and thank you.